is The Unseen, and I'm your host, Mike Cleland. Red Pill Junkie is a blogger, artist, and a strong voice within the UFO community. Now, Red Pill Junkie, or RPJ for short, is a pen name, and he writes for the Daily Grail as well as Radio Mysterioso. And, like myself, he is a cartoonist. And also, he wrote the foreword to my most recent book, Hidden Experience. And I will be including an audio reading from that wonderful essay at the very end of this episode. RPJ lives in Mexico City, and he has a glorious voice. And please know, I did not add any extra bass during the mix. That's really how he sounds. This interview went a little bit long, so let's not waste any time here. Let's jump right into it. This conversation was recorded Tuesday, May 26th, 2020. Please enjoy. Red Pill Junkie, I am so honored that you said yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Thank you, Mike. It means a lot to me, too. You know, I mean, like, I've always, uh, I've been fantasizing about... uh, having a, a conversation with you ever since I, I listened to your audio conversations that you recorded for your uh, blog, Hidden Experience. The, yeah, the, my, my podcast, for uh, I did that for six years. It's funny, what mm-hmm. happened is I, I, uh, I loved it. I really got, it was my therapy. That was my therapy, the, those, those sessions. And when I started on the Owl Book stuff, like I just, boom, it all ended. Mm. But man, I just... That just shut down in 2014, and all my energy went into those books. So, yeah, this feels good to be doing this again. I, it's funny, I still f- treat it as therapy in some way, mm-hmm. you know. So, so I kind of went into this thinking, like, oh, I'm done with my therapy, and now I can just have a podcast. And I still recognize it's my therapy. Yeah, well, I think that uh, uh, at least in this uh, society we live in therapy never ends right I yeah mean, we need it yes. i don't think uh, <laughs> i don't think that psychiatrists will earn a lot of money if they say to the patients okay you're cured you know <laughs> you don't have to come again <laughs> go live your life um hey here i so i'm going to do the thing that i almost hate to do but i'm going to do it anyway how did you get interested in this subject it's a difficult question to answer uh, truthfully, uh, like I, I was born in 1973, right? I'm, in fact, I take pride in the fact that I was born in a year that was so important in terms of uh, encounters with humanoids and all of that. And I'm a child of the 80s. So I was born with uh, watching Steven Spielberg's movies, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, E.T., the Extraterrestrial, Cocoon. So I was from the get-go, since I, from as long as I can remember, I was interested in this thing. And maybe this interest even began before I was born. But what I mean by that is that uh, some of my older relatives, some of my uh, uncles and great-uncles, when they died and they bequeathed some of their books to me, and I found a bunch of uh, books delving into topics such as ancient astronaut theory, the Great Pyramid, that sort of stuff. So what I mean by this is, I think I recognize 
some kind of like uh, like that I belong to a lineage of people who were fascinated by by very peculiar topics. Yeah, yeah, and I was a child of the '70s, and we had you know the the first generation of movies or TV shows. I guess I I, I keep on going back to In Search of. There's a television show with with right. uh, Leonard Nimoy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and with me was uh, Unsolved Mysteries, right? Essentially the same type of show, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Except uh, yeah, except one had uh, Robert Stack and one had uh, Leonard Nimoy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also, I have to uh, uh, mention that growing up in Mexico, I also used to watch the TV shows that were produced by this little-known guy by the name of Jaime Maussan. I've met him. I've met him very briefly. Yeah, well, uh, uh, back in those days, he used to be a, a young producer for the Mexican version of 60 Minutes, right? So he was kind of like an investigative, investigative reporter. He used to cover all sorts of topics, uh, especially something about uh, the environment, things like that. And then one, th- one day he decided to do a, a, a segment on Edward Billy Meyer the famous Swiss contactee. So imagine, you know, a, a kid who is, you know, nine, 10 years old, seeing those videos of, of Billy Meyer, his Pleiadian ships, his photos of, of these gleaming metal chrome polished uh, saucers on a backdrop of, of a very bucolic uh, European landscape. I don't know, there's, there's something about that juxtaposition that was very evocative very powerful to me and it was i was hooked you know uh so another of the reasons why i was very interested from the get-go in 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 the ufo subject and then when i grew up back in 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 my high school days there was an event here in mexico in the year of 1991 when there was this uh total solar eclipse happening and Mexico was in like in the path of the totality, right? And some people claim to have seen uh, this object right in the moment of the, of the sun's occultation. And that to me, that's also very influential. Uh, back, that was, according to some, the beginning of a very active UFO wave uh, that happened in the late or, or mid 1990s, and, and Jaime Maussan, like I said, was the go-to guy. You know, he, he used to be invited to all these late-night uh, host TV shows, and he will present these to our, you know, nowadays we will we'll probably be non non too impressed with those those videos of you know lights in the sky, or whatever. But to me, that was like. It wasn't like my bread and butter. It was the thing that I always needed to try to get a hold on. And yeah, for some reason, I decided to stick with it, you know, even though I, I eventually went to high, uh, to college and then uh, got a job and all that. But uh, the subject never left me. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting, the the um, the eclipse. I mean, that's such a such a perfect kind of... I mean, almost like a science fictiony script, you know, to have the the eclipse be this that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. The uh, the eclipse from I think three summers ago now. I think it would have been two thousand seventeen, the one through North America. 
I'm living in New York yeah. State right now, but I used to live in Idaho. And the path of the eclipse, NASA had this website, and the and the track of the full eclipse. They had the line on this map. Mm -hmm. You could zoom in on it, and it, you know you could get the, the the little line like one pixel thick, and you could just zoom in on the center of the line, and it passed right through my old cabin where I used to live. Hmm. And that where it passes through the um, line of um, longitude is 111.111. So where the eclipse passes through my cabin is 111.111. Actually, th by the time you get to uh, that, that many digits on a line of longitude, you're dealing with a very short distance on the Earth itself. And it was mm. technically in the driveway, in my driveway, but but um, but that did actually go right through my house. Could that be, you mentioned the driveway, you could, could that be the position of where you remember to have seen that uh, big uh, spherical light? Oh, the orange flash? Yeah, no, no, that, I, I'm thinking of that other uh, memory of you peeking out uh, through your window and seeing these oh, beings. Oh, that was actually Maine, that was Maine. Oh, okay, so. sorry. So yeah, so that was a, that was another house, but it also was a driveway. Yeah, so mm, it was yeah, near the okay. driveway. That was technically near the driveway. Okay, right next to the driveway where where that would have been. Yeah, driveways. Yeah, there's. I, I did a blog post ages ago on driveways, and there was mm -hmm. I started to get a bunch of owl pictures from driveways. Um, people sending me owls in their driveway. So and it linked to a whole bunch of other stuff. But that was sort of the, my my headspace at the time, just kind of trying to shamelessly connect all these puzzle pieces it was kind of a mania uh, on my part for years that blog you know trying to obsessively uh, mm -hmm. make sense of this and that is actually takes us to this the question i wanted to ask is you know why is the subject of ufos so obsessive it's a good question uh, some years ago a, a common friend of ours greg bishop interviewed this guy by the name of uh, Bruce Duensing. Now he was not, he wasn't uh, a big name or, or, or in the UFO world. You know, he wasn't a researcher or anything. He was just uh, a person like you and I. You know, someone who who had been pondering on these topics for a very very long time and had reached his own conclusions. And at one point of that uh, podcast. Greg asked him, uh, you know, the hypothetical question, you know, if you were had the chance to uh, sit in front of an alien being and ask it just one question, what would it be? And I still remember Bruce, Bruce's response because he said, if I were to ask an alien being just one question, it would be, what am I? And, and that to me is an interesting response because I guess it kind of like makes me think that perhaps the obsession we have with the UFO topic is because we as a human species, the, the thing that we don't like is like the other in order to make sense of ourselves. What I mean by that is like, we, imagine you as an individual living all alone. Uh, you will be uh, totally at a loss because I feel human beings need other people in order to kind of like bounce back and to try to get a sense of who you are, 
not because you need people to tell you who you are, but you need a reference point. You know, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like you will see yourself in a reflection and then you see other people and say, OK, so I know that I'm I'm tall because I see other people that are shorter than me. I know that maybe I'm a bit of heavy set because I see people that are leaner than me, uh, things like that. So maybe the reason why we are so obsessed with the idea of UFOs, non-human entities that may or may not be visiting our, our world is because we are desperate to have that point of reference in order to understand who we, the human, as human beings, what we really are. You know, when I would talk about UFOs to people, you know, there's this kind of, I don't want to, I want to be careful. I want to say a gauge. I don't want to say it's a judgment thing, but any thoughtful person, and I've said this many times and written it too, but any thoughtful two people who begin a conversation on UFOs, if they're really pondering the questions, it won't take but five minutes before they get to, what does it all mean? Why am I here? What's the meaning of life? You know, who is God? You know, these kind of questions are interwoven into this mystery. Mm -hmm. And that's what concerns me. I think a lot of, and I want to be, I don't want to, again, I just want to, don't want to be too judgmental, but I think that there's an aspect of the nuts and bolts research. Like I'll say MUFON, right? The MUFON establishment that, mm -hmm. that, that, that doesn't end up at that question. You know, they're, yeah. they're, they're wrestling with other things, which are important. And it's probably worthwhile to, you know, document that stuff. And, and, but, but to me, that's, I, I'm, I'm. I'm in, I'm trying to wrestle with those bigger, bigger, deeper questions. Yeah, I agree. I agree that uh, UFOs should be anyone's gateway drug, if you want to use that um, analogy. It will some, be something that will open your mind to the bigger mysteries and that will have to lead you, like you said, from asking yourself about life in other planets. And then thanks to ufology, you will probably learn a lot about uh, about history, about astronomy, maybe about physics, uh, chemistry and mythology. And, and then I think if you follow this path correctly, because to me, it's it's almost like a spiritual path you know it's a it's a path that leads to to a betterment of yourself both you know intellectually you know mentally maybe you know even spiritually if you go through this path you start to find things that don't really add up to this notion that was that we are being just visited by little scientists who come in a structured metal craft to our planet to conduct experiments or to do whatever. Uh, you read the works of people like Turnus McKenna. You read the works of John Keel. You read the works of maybe people uh, outside the United States, uh, Salvador Frexedo in, in Spain, JJ Benitez also in Spain. And you realize, wait a minute, you know, there, there is more here. And then you you read the works of Jacques Vallée, who tells you, well, you know, there's also a psychic component that that we need to factor in. And the nuts and bolts people are are like, no, 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 no. We need to get rid of that garbage because <laughs> we need to make a, a case. You know, we need to present this case before this imaginary judge 
uh, that is going to gauge our evidence. So we, we cannot avoid to put in all this uh, psychic nonsense or all these ideas or, or maybe, heavens forbid, to, to admit that there's also other mysteries that cross uh, cross-pollinate with UFOs, like, for example, uh, cryptozoology, you know, Stan Gordon saying that people who have seen U- UFOs, they also encounter Bigfoot-like creatures. Yes. And that's like, no! I know oh. a few people who have. That's remarkable, yeah. Yeah. And, 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 I'm, and I'm interested in, I'm more interested now in where these fields tend to, like, uh, intersect than the center of the fields themselves. You know what I mean? Like, I prefer the outliers. I feel it's in the outliers when we can probably start to see, if not the answers to these mysteries, but maybe to ask ourselves better questions about it. Precisely, precisely. Hey, we are going to need to take our very first break. Mm -hmm. For free listeners, you will be hearing a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen with my friend Red Pill Junkie, and we are talking about the outlying stuff that has to do with UFOs. And for me, that is where that is where my heart is. I mean, you, so what you said just before the break is what I feel. I just want, I'll tell one little funny story here. Um, I was at a UFO conference. This is going back probably, probably seven years ago or so now. And uh, it was at the UFO conference that's held annually in Arizona in down near Phoenix, mm-hmm. the IUFOC. And this was the final dinner, the final event. Uh, and I had a suit on, which I very rarely wear. And uh, James Fox was there. And then also Lee Spiegel is there. We were kind of mingling and I walked up to him and I asked Lee Spiegel, I said, hey, you know, I've been following your work on the Huffington Post and I notice you don't really cover the subject of abductions at all. And he he very plainly said, yes, yeah, that's that's done on purpose. We just want to be taken seriously. <laughs> and I kind of was, oh, I just, my heart sank. And, and Lee Spiegel is a great guy. So I'm not, I'm not, I understand what he meant, but at the same time, it, it was a it was a drag, <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, and then I walked, went up to James Fox and I said, "Hey, you're working on this new documentary. I understand you're working on this new documentary, and and how's that going?" He's like, "Oh, it's going great. I think it's going to be this really great thing." And it's like, "Hey, are you going to cover abductions in this new documentary?" He goes, "No, no. We want to be taken seriously." <laughs> and so this happened. These two conversations happened like you know within five minutes of each other, and I remember I gave him this look like was just like, "Oh God," <laughs> and and I, he knew it like. I, we exchanged business cards and did the kind of thing you do at a formal event like that to, to, to uh, James Fox's credit. And he called me up a couple of days later, back when I was home in Idaho. And he asked me, he said, hey, you know, listen, I, I recognize that, um, you know, that that was an emotional subject for you. And I apologize. So so we had a long, wonderful conversation. And um, so he takes it very seriously. And, I, and I, it meant a lot to me that he called me back just to kind of quiz. What he wanted to ask more than anything is if I knew what would be a very reputable, someone who would have good camera presence to talk about mm. their experiences. And I gave him a few names. And I think he actually, this is going back a few years, but I think he did actually cover Travis in that in that documentary. I can't remember mm. exactly when that was. But that that mentality of, of uh, oh, I want to be taken seriously. Like, and I, I mean, everyone's got their crazy line, right? Where there's like a line in the sand and something on the other side of that line, it's like, well, I'm not going there. Everyone's got that. Sure. Um, I think we're. I think 
if you don't step over that line and at least search around on the other side, you're doing yourself and the subject of disservice. Yeah, I let's put the example of uh, people like artists like David Bowie. It's not like artists like David Bowie change themselves in order to fit in and be accepted by the culture. They stay exactly uh, who they are, who they were. And it, what happened is that the culture eventually changed and it started to reach where they had been all along. You know, the same thing with, I don't know, uh, advocates of the LGBT culture. Uh, a friend of mine is a friend of uh, Dan Savage, who used to uh, have a, a column in some newspaper, you know, back in the 80s, back when, you know, the, being in the closet for the gay community was still a huge deal. And and those people, what they did was forced the culture to, like, reach out to where they were, not the other way around. And maybe that is the problem with people in the UFO community who take that attitude of, oh, well, we need to change and we need to polish our act so that we can be taken seriously by by, by the, the powers that be or by, by the academy or by, you know, this hierarchy in which we want to be accepted. And what I say is that, no, uh, sorry, but F that, <laughs> you know, yeah. we are outsiders. We have a role to play as the outsiders of culture, that we are in this vantage position in which we can see the problems that are in the culture that people who are too deeply involved with it are probably as uh, blinded or, or are myopic to those problems. And, and we have this uh, opportunity to raise those problems. And if we're lucky, uh, the culture might pay attention to us at the right moment and then the, the culture change and then what was in the outlier becomes the mainstream and then somebody on the, from the outside needs to come in and try to shake things up one more time. Otherwise, uh, things become stagnant. So I think that's the problem with the ufology. Ufology wants to take serious. It's like almost like in the movie uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Roy Neary who is in that conference with, with the Air Force, and he wants so desperately to be taken seriously. And then there's that old guy who says, I saw Bigfoot in 1957. <laughs> you can see the poor man saying, oh, God. And then the yeah. fact that, you know, that's part of the whole thing, too, which is like the, I mean, I have to guess that that the scriptwriters had no idea that Bigfoot is somehow interwoven with the UFO mystery. Maybe they did, I don't know. But, but you know, seeing that movie now, what is it, nearly 40 years later, um, you know, that line to me is like, well, yeah, Bigfoot, Bigfoot is interwoven into the UFO lore mm -hmm. to the need to be. And I like to be taken seriously, but at the same time, like I can't water down my story f to, to please someone else. Exactly. And that's, you know, that that's sort of a, f a flaw in my, in my, my makeup, I guess, uh, you know, that just, cause I, it's funny cause I've had like, uh, you know, I had to say it like the job interview where someone will call me from a radio station and they'll say like, uh, so we want to talk to you about what's your subject or what do you talk about? And I'm like, um, I'll, I could give some examples of the, um, network. I won't say anything, but, uh, uh, you know, like, Oh, it's UFOs and owls. And then I got like 
20 seconds to make my pitch, you know, and, and you can just hear him on the other end of the phone, like, oh, click, <laughs> you lose, you know, um, it's tough. It's tough. Here's the thing. I mean, I feel that uh, when people do that, when people say, okay, we need to make our, uh, our, our case. And so we need to strip down these things that may seem too wacko uh, or to see, doesn't seem to make any sense. You risk leaving out the, th the most important part of the mystery. Uh, and this is something that I wanted to t try to touch upon when I wrote uh, the foreword for your book that was the commemoration of your 10th year anniversary of your blog, Hidden Experience. When I mentioned the story of uh, Johannes Kepler, who was like the first true uh, astronomer, you know, before, you know, uh, when, uh, when astrology became uh, a quote unquote true science. And he was trying to come up with this concept of uh, the, the, the paths of the planets revolving the sun, right? So he, he had this really interesting idea that came to him in this moment of inspiration that the, that the, the planets were moving according to the, the shapes of what is called the platonic solids, you know, the, the, the cube, the tetrahedron, the hycosahedron, the decahedron, all those things. So he thought that he had found evidence of this cosmic geometrist, God, in the way that the planets were moving in the trajectory around the sun. And he was trying to make that case using observational data. But the problem is that uh, it, at the end of the day, one tiny problem had with his, his master theory, and that was the, the trajectory of the planet Mars. Mars was the, the one that in the, in the sky has the most eccentric trajectory. And there was this guy, Tycho Brahe, who told him, you need to pay attention to Mars, otherwise you're not going to solve this. And to Kepler's credit, he did that, and he was forced to throw out his grand perfect geometry theory that he had first envisioned, but he did come with the actual trajectories of the planets that, that revolve around the sun on an elliptical orbit, right? Mm -hmm. And with that, he laid the foundations for what then Newton used in order to come up with the laws of gravity and all that. So that is the value of paying attention to the things that mess around with your tiny little perfect model of the universe. That to me is the, is the UFO phenomenon. You have this really nice house of cards, perfect in any way that you feel that explains things as, as they should be. And here comes the UFO phenomenon that just, ping, it, you know, just rattles a bit of, of one of the cards and everything falls down. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I think, what happens with any UFO witness. Right. So they have to they have to wrestle with, you know, I guess things are a little different in the last three years or so now since the New York Times put that article out. But our consensus mm -hmm. culture says there's no such thing as UFOs, except when you see one, then you're then you have to you're 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 no longer standing on bedrock. You're standing on sand yeah. and you have to rebuild that bedrock somehow. And you and it's not bedrock. It's something completely different. You know, it might be some balancing act you're doing at this point. Because you, but but I I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's almost like what happens. Uh, I mean, everybody goes through that, right? At one point in their lives, we during adolescence when you're trying to figure out who you are, and you have the, like the the bedrock, the foundation you're talking, the one that was laid down by your parents about you know the rules or your 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 this moral maybe religious values that we you were taught in, and then some, uh, if in order to actually become a true person, you have to discard all that and you have to start from scratch, which is one of the reasons why that is a particular traumatic period uh, for most uh, humans in our society. Teenagers, yeah. Yeah, teenagers, right? It's called growing pains. It, it's the reason why it's called adolescence, because you are, you are like in constant pain, you know, like uh, trying to decide who you are. Now, now imagine going through that all over again when you're an adult. It's I, almost I like know, that. I know about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, almost like Spock. Remember how Balkans, male Balkans, go through the bonfire, which is kind of like going through 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 uh, puberty. But when you're on a, a grown up, <laughs> yeah, he takes over the Enterprise and hijacks it back to back to his home planet. Yeah, to mate. Yeah, that was I love that episode. The cool. Hey, um, we are going to need to take our second and final break. For free listeners, you will hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen with my friend Red Pill Junkie, and we are talking about UFOs and the research and the problems that are inherent in this research. Hey, I'm going to read an excerpt. This was from the essay you wrote in Robbie's book, Robbie Graham's book, which is called UFOs, Reframing the Debate. It has a great cover, by the way, uh, which you did as a as an art director and i i guess i should give you a little plug there so um yes you and i are both art directors and illustrators even though i haven't done much in the last few years i've put all my energies into the to the writing part as opposed to the illustration part but in robbie's book i'm going to read a little quote you wrote arthur c clark once wrote that any sufficiently advanced technology would be indistinguishable from magic Perhaps he forgot to consider how any sufficiently advanced mentality would equally be indistinguishable from madness. What point were you trying to make there? Well, uh, I remember once uh, imagining myself going back to the, the age of uh, Leonardo da Vinci. You know, I guess because... Uh, like I said, I'm a child of the 80s, so I also was influenced by Carl Sagan's Cosmos. And there is this chapter in which he goes to uh, the Italian Tuscany uh, to retrace the steps of the young Albert Einstein. And also in that episode, he also talks about Leonardo da Vinci. And I thought how difficult it would be to try to explain to someone like Leonardo, who was probably... Uh, one of the biggest intellect in the whole world back in, in back in his age tried to explain perhaps not our technology but our our habits and our intentions imagine trying to explain okay so yeah humans in the world in 500 years from now will be able to connect to all people instantaneously and children and, and teenagers will have all the knowledge of mankind at the palm of their hands, but 
that amazing technology will be mostly devoted to seeing cat videos. You know, the, he will probably come to the conclusion that humans in the future had gone insane. And, you know, maybe, maybe he's right from his point of view. So now imagine translating that to an intelligence that is probably thousands upon thousands of years more advanced than us and was not even uh, evolved in our world. You know, if you want to go to the ETH, entertain it for a, for, for a little bit, imagine uh, trying to understand the rationale of a, a being that was evolved, uh, you know, in another, with another biology system. There is a, a philosopher, I forget his name, I think he's a French one, who said, once said, if lions were able to speak English or our language, we still wouldn't be able to understand them, you know? And that's because what lions, uh, they are mammals, they're, they are very close to humans, biologically speaking, uh, you know, probably just a, 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 a few percentage of DNA of difference between a lion and a human being. And yet, uh, the world of a lion is completely different than the world of, of, of a man. Why? Because their the impu impulses are different, their their habits are different, their their drives and their needs are different. So that's what I mean. That uh, maybe what we are seeing in the UFO phenomenon, the reason why why the governments of the world have a lot of trouble acknowledging the existence of UFOs is because they really can't make sense of the UFOs behavior because the, there is this absurdity that at the heart of it that is very problematic, especially like I tried to make the case in that, in that particular essay, problematically, especially uh, for the institutions at the top of our society. Why? Because institutions the, the way they, they, they gain and maintain power is by trying to, to have this structure of how things should behave, you know? Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but UFOs don't behave by our rules. They don't even seem to behave by, by, by our logical rules. I mean, UFOs' behavior is totally rational. Uh, Someone like Stephen, Stephen Hawking used to make fun of UFOs because he couldn't understand why uh, alien beings would rather contact uh, farmers in Nebraska or, or single moms in Missouri or Buenos Aires than contact him who is, you know, one, one, was one of the smartest men of our generation, you know. So therefore, UFOs are nonsense. Well, no, but just because UFOs don't make a sense to how you would like them to behave doesn't mean that UFOs don't exist. That's the challenge. If you anthropomorphize the, them, if you want to turn the UFOs, the UFO occupants into us somehow, mm -hmm. that's perfect if it's a Star Trek episode, but it doesn't work if it's, if it's given the available evidence. Exactly. Yeah. How does shamanism fit into this, this overall quandary of the UFOs? 
Uh, well, we will first have to try to uh, identify what we mean when we use the term shaman. Like shaman, we know that uh, anthropologists apply them to other cultures uh, outside of our, our Western civilization. It's actually a, 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 a term that was derived from, from a, a Russian word, I, I, I guess. Yes, saman, I think is the word, yeah. Exactly. But basically it's like the elder man or like the medicine doctor in, in, the, in a tribe and the guy who, or, or woman, obviously, because it's not, obviously not uh, uh, gender related. In, in fact, uh, an, a very interesting thing about shamans, uh, talking about, we talked about David Bowie previously. Another thing, uh, a very interesting thing about shamans is that they are gender fluid, you know, like a male shaman will, will uh, deliberately dress in female clothes and perhaps maybe vice versa. And that's very interesting. So there is this transgression, right? There, there's like this role of the shaman to, to go against the rules of the tribe to try to knock them down just to, to keep uh, the, 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 the society dynamic and, and prevent them to going from stagnation. And someone like Terence McKenna will go to UFO conference and annoy the crap out of uh, ufologists by saying, well, all this talk about communication with alien beings is no biggie in other cultures. You know, you, you go to an Amazonian shaman and he will say, of course, I can talk to alien beings. I only need to drink this very nasty beverage called ayahuasca and I can talk to beings from all sorts of realms. Uh, but obviously that's not what ufologists want to hear, right? And, and the thing is that in those cultures, there seems to be a better integration of accepting these different realms of existence and, and having a, a better, I don't know, rapport, like a better communication, a better communion. We want to use that term, which I think actually is, 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 is a great term, a better communion with those realms uh, in contrast with our own culture, which is still refusing to admit not only the, exi the existence of uh, UFOs, but even the, the possibility that uh, consciousness is able to survive physical death, right? We're so enamored with our materialism because, oh, well, materialism gave us our iPhones and or gave us the internet and, and gave us, I don't know, Bob's Burgers or whatever, and thinks, oh, materialism is the end all be all of everything. But materialism doesn't seem to be able to, to explain UFOs, not entirely, as we have been saying here in, in, in this uh, conversation, not if we actually put the, or observe the UFO mystery in its totality, if we're just not focused on, on the alloys or the propulsion systems on this or that, if we don't just nitpick and go and try to understand the mystery in full, then materialism seems to fall terribly short. But with shamanism, it seems that uh, these cultures have been able to 
adequate and 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 how is how do you say this? How, how, they've been able to interact with these levels of existence in a more productive way, in probably more healthy too, because I'm very worried in how uh, people who claim the contact experience in our culture, the way they are treated, you know, they're treated as as if they are or liars or delusional, insane, and the way that uh, our society treats, treats them is it's uh, very poor, very, very unfair. Maybe if they went to speak to a, a, a shaman in the Amazons or, or in, in, in the deserts of Africa, they would be able to get better treatment and better support than if they went to a psychiatrist in Johns Hopkins Hospital or something. Yeah, and that was, I mean, that John Mack, his final book, Passport to the Cosmos, had a huge influence on me, where he compared and contrasted the shamanic initiation, you know, the what we would call the primitive cultures that have a shamanic initiation process. He compared and contrasted that to the UFO contact experience. It's, you know, it's, when I ran my other podcast, we talked about this a little bit earlier, This there was a couple questions, not everyone, but I asked nearly everyone two questions. One was, about the owls, you know, what's up with the owls? And the other question was, how would you define a shaman? And it's very strange because I didn't, I didn't really tie those two together. I, I tie them together now, but at the time I did not tie them together at all. And now I see these as, as absolutely linked where the owl would be the totem animal of the shaman. Mm-hmm. And that's understood in a great many cultures. That's, I'm not stepping out on a limb to say that. Yeah, And then, um, and the, I guess the role the shaman plays in society. I think we are bereft. We have we are we have a void in our society. We do not have a shaman yeah. in our society. We have people doing shaman-like things. A little half step back where people are doing. And there's obviously real shamans around, but not to the meaningful extent that that um, like every village would have had you know a teepee at the edge of the village where you could have talked with a shaman. We don't quite have that now. You know, we have people doing reiki, which I consider a shaman-like you know, ritual or, or, or skill, let's say. And, um, yeah, so I think, I think we are adrift in some ways without our shamans. I postulated in my second book that perhaps the UFO occupants are seeding the planet with shamans, you know, they're, they're trying to create shamans and the shamanic initiation is brutal. You know, people are taken to the edge of death. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, to me, I will leave still leave the question open of which came first, the chicken or the egg. It's is it that the phenomenon is the one responsible for seeding the shamans, or is it that the shamans are produced uh, naturally by some little understood law of the universe? And the UFOs are naturally attracted to those shamans the same way that, uh, I don't know, a moth is naturally attracted to a light bulb. I'll go to see that guy because he's the one who is shining the brightest. Yeah, I, I, I follow that logic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hey, you have read a lot of Castaneda. Mm-hmm. So how has that helped you with your UFO studies? 
It's a, it's a good question. I, I read Castaneda when I was in my final years of college. And I found interesting parallels between the the narrative, the stories that Castaneda was writing about. And let's not go into the details of whether he was telling the truth or not. That's not really, this is not really the time for it. But there was some correlations between that and what I perceived in the UFO phenomenon. One interesting thing about it is that uh, Castaneda, like, he talks about this main core of experiences, right? When he was under Don Juan's apprenticeship, Don Juan was this uh, yaki brujo that he was, he became like his uh, uh, Carlos tutor, and, and, and Carlos became like this sorceress apprentice of sort. And then there's all the other characters that appear in, in, in Carlos's life, and then there is this like secret life that Carlos starts to gradually remember of things that were ha- hap- happening when he went down to Mexico to visit Don Juan. But there was these like teachings that were happening in a different uh, a different uh, state of consciousness. What he what he called uh, uh, the consciousness of the Nahual. And, and in, 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 the, in his philosophy, our everyday consciousness is tonal, and when there is in this heightened state of consciousness, is called in a wild state. So that to me seems to have a lot of resonance with people in in in, in the UFO world, the ones who claim to have had the contact experience, and they feel they have this secret life that is totally unknown even to them. And, and sometimes they try to get a hold of them through the use of hypnosis or other techniques. And sometimes it um, naturally uh, is reintegrated into their normal consciousness. I feel that parallel was was very interesting. And, 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 and yeah, you know, maybe there's a lot of us who have this secret life that we really don't have a, a lot of clue of. I mean, it's almost like trying to remember your dream after you you wake up, right? Absolutely, yeah. The the dream realm, that's the um you know, I equate the dream realm so strongly with the contact experience. Yeah. Where I where I see like to to untangle these strange stories, you don't need the skills of a of a UFO investigator you would need the skills of a dream interpreter, mm-hmm. right? So so people say like, oh my God, I had this UFO contact experience and all this strange stuff went on. And and then and it, to, to navigate those waters, I say like, just treat reality, even if it's just seeing a flying saucer, you know, in the sky at night, you know, no contact in, in the sort of abduction way that we, we sometimes frame it. But I would say that even in the simplest UFO sightings, there's often a a symbolic element Yes. Or a dreamlike element that shows up within there. Yeah. 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 There's some seed that is implanted and that is probably one going to, ma- not, not in all of people, but in some people it will manifest probably in their subconscious. And if they're lucky, you know, maybe that sub- subconscious part gets to talk to the conscious part at one point. I have a very close friend and she 
had a powerful UFO sighting. She was driving down a road at night, and uh, there was kind of a, a rural road, but there were some houses around. And she turns this corner, and there's this huge hovering UFO just at treetop levels, giant triangle craft. And her little son was in the back seat, and she hops out of the car, and she runs to the nearest house, and he pounds on the door. He's like, get out here, get out here, you got to see this. Get it's basically, she didn't believe it. She wanted someone else to see it too. Get out here, get out here, you got to see this. And just as the people come out, the, the, it, it, it slowly eases off over the trees and is gone. The people claim to have seen a little glow. They said they could certainly see a glow. They couldn't make out what it was at that point. It was beyond the trees. So she gets back in her car, and she drives, and the next turn was a T-intersection, right? So you get to a stop sign. There's a T intersection, so you have to either go right or left. So she gets to this intersection, and there's a fox at the stop sign. Now, to me, like the most interesting part of the story is the fox. Right. Like that's dream logic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I mean, that's open to interpretation what that might mean, but so is any dream. Yeah. And and with Castaneda, there were there weren't any foxes, but there were coyotes you know he, and under the influence of uh mescalito you know peyote he used to talk to coyotes and to receive receive knowledge from them so i you were a child of the 80s i'm a child of the 70s and let me tell you those books those castaneda's books the teachings of don juan were everywhere yeah. when i was growing up like everyone had them in their house and you didn't need to buy them you could get those you could get all of them at any point any time at any garage sale, those those books had such a strong presence, and it's faded now. I mean, they're still in publication, and and uh, there's some wonderful audio readings, audio books of them. But um, yeah, and I have only read the very first one, The Teachings of Don Juan, and I loved it. Uh, I found it surprisingly dense. I didn't expect it to be so dense. I remember it in high school, we would just read the drug parts and all laugh at him. But you know, <laughs> it was so so funny the way he wrote. But and and it, and even now, it's still pretty funny. But uh, but there's a lot more to it than just the you know the psychedelic trip. Yeah, there's a lot of that. You know, I mean, and even if you uh, dismiss his claims of uh, you know visiting this uh, brujo receiving this knowledge and being able to create these amazing feats of consciousness, like seeing uh, the, the universe as it really is, like lines of energy converging in beings in the, world, in the form of glowing eggs, just like, similar to you know, what happens by the end of, of, of the first Matrix movie, right? Which is the reason why I actually chose, chose the moniker Red Pill Junkie, because I saw these very important correlation between the, the teachings of Castaneda and and, and this uh, science fiction story uh, told by the Wachowski siblings. But even if you dismiss all of that, there's still really interesting philosophical ideas that have a lot of merit. Like, for example, the idea of taking responsibility for your actions, living your life uh, as a warrior, for example, that uh, still, I feel, applies. The idea that you as a human being, you have to be conscious every moment of your life to the fact that you are going to die. And the moment that you accept that, you integrate that fully, then every act of your life will be calculated the same way that a, that a warrior calculates their moves before they go to battle. Because it is literally something of a, a matter of life and death. When you realize 
when you stop acting as an immortal being, like saying, ah, well, I have time to do that later. When you say, no, actually you won't. You have these X amount of minutes or X amounts of heartbeats that are allotted to your life. So what are you going to do with them? What are you going to do with them? If you actually pay attention to that, then everything becomes clearer to you. And mind you, I'm not saying that I've been able to master this. You know, I'm still just a, a fool like most of us, you know, living life moment to moment, wasting too many precious moments, uh, uh, checking on my Twitter feed and all of that. Uh, but still, from time to time, I try to remember those teachings and try to keep them at least in the back of my mind to remember, yeah, you know, I am going to die and it's going to be sooner rather than later. It's a one-way road. Yeah. Well, you know what? And and so this is, this. I'm going to, uh, Leo Sprickle, he's must be 90. He must be in his early 90s now. Mm-hmm. Um, I I should reach out and talk to him. He was, he's been an incredible kind mentor to me. I haven't talked to him in a few years. Mm. He has been doing UFO research since the early sixties. So he's got nearly 60 years, over 50 years where he has essentially been using the same questionnaire. So his data pool is remarkable. And one of the things that I said, you know, what came out of that data pool? I said, you know, what's interesting is, so you ask the cross section of the population, do you believe in reincarnation? And it fluctuates mm-hmm. depending on where you are and who you ask and stuff like that. But it's, you know, there's this, a certain percentage say yes. People who have had UFO contact. And I th- I think I'm doing this right. I think he even, even if people have simply seen a UFO, it's it's so close to 100% that he basically rounds it off to 100%. He says, 100% of the people who have had UFO contact believe in reincarnation. Mm-hmm. So yes, we have death at the end, and then you know it's a it's a cycle. So whether we come back in the, in the ways that you know might be in a you know corny Hollywood movie, or if it's something more nuanced and more subtle, I can only imagine. I can only guess, but I certainly believe in reincarnation. And I thought that that was a remarkable finding that I've never really heard anyone else talk about. And we're back to that. You know, what does it all mean? You know, why are we here? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and uh, aside from The Matrix, the Wachowski siblings made uh, a movie that I really like, Cloud Atlas, which also deals with the idea of reincarnation. And in the case of that movie, is trying to like learn the compassion and try to learn to be selfless and to live in the service of others instead of just living to satisfy your own selfish uh, needs. And yeah, you know, maybe maybe that is uh, that is one of the things that we are here. You know, the same way that uh, when Whitley was kind of like channeling like the the, the visitors at one point, and, and his late wife Anne was asking this question of like, "What is the Earth?" And he received the answer: "The Earth is a school." You know, and I think that Leo Sprinkle has also talked about in that, in that sense, well, yeah, maybe it's a school or maybe it's, <laughs> maybe it's a reformatory, you know, <laughs> maybe yeah, it's, it's, yeah. A, it's a school for all the, the, the kids who were kicked out of the, the, the nice schools, you know, were sent out and we're just trying to, you know, survive, getting, uh, preventing the, the, the bullies to punch us and, and steal our lunch money. 
Yeah. Yeah, but it takes us back to those deeper questions. And so that's, um, I think it was Ray Palmer, who originally uh, was the the publisher of Fate magazine. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to, I'm going to do this quote poorly. But he said, UFOs are here to make us think. Mm -hmm. And I would amend that to say UFOs are here to make us think deeply. Exactly. And it's tough. It's tough. I mean, so this is the problem is, you know, people are having a lot of people are having terrible, traumatic, brutal, frightening, hellish experiences. Mm-hmm. And and I wrestle with that. You know, there's a there's a there's a strong pull in some segments of the community to paint it all, you know, as unicorns and rainbows and sparkles and and right. It, you can do that. You can cherry pick the data, and you can you can you can you can find that evidence out there. That evidence is out there, but you have to willfully ignore other evidence to, to yeah. focus on that. And to that, I will respond. Uh, a friend of mine uh, interviewed this very uh, important uh, pioneer of the psychedelic uh, revolution, Gene Fadiman, who's still around. He's still uh, he's still working as a psychedelic guide. Uh, he's actually the, 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 the guy who uh, started the microdosing movement that's got on a hold of uh, a lot of people in, in Silicon Valley and the like. So he says that there's been studies conducted of people who are asked, you know, what is your uh, most profound psychedelic experience? And a lot of people even choose negative experience as their most profound one because not because they they enjoyed it, but be, because the amount of things they they, they got to learn from them, uh, to the point that people like Jim Fadiman says there are no quote unquote bad trips, they are just challenging trips. So the, I feel in that regard, the UFO experience and the psychedelic experience are very in common. You know, with the psychedelics, they talk about set and setting. They never talk about set and setting when it comes to UFO experiences. But maybe uh, what happens with negative UFO experiences is the same thing that happens with bad trips, that people haven't had uh, the chance or the the proper circumstances to properly integrate them into their their psyche and see what they can learn from them. And like I said, obviously, it's not like, hey, yeah, I want to have a bad UFO uh, experience. Nobody says that. Nobody... Nobody goes and takes a, a tab of LSD saying, yeah, let's go, let's go for a bad trip. Nobody wants that. Uh, nevertheless, that's what, that's what you get. And sometimes those can be the incredibly important in your life, nevertheless. Yes. Here, let me just frame my thought. I'll get, let me just think this through for a second. Hey, this is Mike. I am chiming in during the editing. You know, I recorded this last night and I I got kind of frustrated because while RPJ was talking, I, I, I knew what I wanted to say and then I got kind of lost in what he was saying, which which was really interesting. And now during the editing, listening to it again, the exact same thing came up, the thing that I could not remember. And so I'll share it now. And I actually just tried to look for the quote and I, and I heard it during an audio interview and I cannot find it, but I, I think I can paraphrase it pretty well. So, so, so I remember a quote from Joseph Campbell, and this was in the context of someone really 
following their own path and and to go within, to have an inward journey as well as striking out on their own. And And just Campbell said something to the effect of, this is a terribly dangerous path, a path where many have failed. You are walking on the edge of a razor, and the danger is you could fall into yourself. But it is in this danger of going it alone and following some deeper drive that this is where you will find the real rewards. Now, I probably got that a little wrong, but but I feel like that's pretty close. Okay, back to the interview. Okay, so you didn't realize this, but I had written one of the questions. Uh here was UFOs as a psychedelic experience. And I had it on my computer and I had it underlined. And that's what I do when I'm getting ready to ask the next question. I didn't need to ask it. You just jumped right in there and asked. You just answered the question before I asked it. Um, So yes, this is a psychedelic experience. It is a, um, I would argue that this is, yes, it's here to make us think. It's here to transform us. I, I am arguing that because it fits tidy, right? So I can, I can, I may, I may be wrong, but but that's the best thing I, I'm I'm holding on to right now as far as a, as a way to you know the the big why of this mystery. I remember the 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 root of the word psychedelic, Mike, from comes from the Greek, and it literally means soul manifesting. Yes, yes. So I think there are many ways in which the soul can be manifested. And I, I honestly believe that in some cases UFOs can be such a such a way. Yes, and that, I mean that, that I would think of um, Alan Stevelman's film *Witness of Another World* is a mm-hmm. beautiful example. Yes. Of of almost everything we've talked about here, and um, and I did, have you seen his movie *Humano*? Uh, I haven't yet. You should. I I, I will promise. As soon as, as soon as we finish this, I'm, I'm going to. You know, I'm not putting pressure on you, but it's. A, I, I did an interview with him on that movie. I don't think he. I don't think he's been interviewed on that movie, and, and he is really happy to talk about it. It is such a subtle movie. He went to work with a shaman. He was basically yes. depressed. I mean, that was as simple as way as everything. And he begins the movie by showing pictures of himself, and he's he's a little kid, and then as he gets to the age he's at, he's smiling less and less and less. And he just shows mm-hmm. it in these pictures, a very subtle way to, to get his point across. And then he just carries a video camera around with him and and videotapes a bunch of stuff when he's working with a shaman. And he had no intention of making a movie into it. And the movie is just this footage that he just kind of was keeping a video diary. And it mm-hmm. turned into this remarkably moving video. Uh, or it wasn't a video; it was a film in its totality. It was a powerful, beautiful film, and and you can see the stepping stone that that film was to what would be his much more popular film, Witness of right. Another World. And and in the case of Alan, it it seems as if grabbing that camera and beginning that journey is the way he in which he managed to find his path with heart to use that beautiful uh, metaphor from Carlos Castaneda's book. And yeah, I, I know of that kind of depression. I feel that depression comes when you are not following the path with heart, that 
is the one you are supposed to follow. I feel, I, I hope that now that, uh, that I'm doing my things uh, that are involved in some way or another with the UFO phenomenon that I am following my, my, my path with heart. And I actually feel that is one of the reasons why I probably haven't jumped jump off of a building or whatever. Uh, and I'm sure with the, your case is the same. When the moment that you you started your blog, hidden experience, the moment that you started with those interviews, that's when you, Mike, found your path with hearts. And and, and that path obviously is now uh, evolved into this uh, this podcast of yours, the unseen. Thank you for saying that, but it, yes, and I and I recognize a couple things happened when I started doing the blog. I started getting people contacting me and thanking me for for giving them a voice for things that they were struggling with, and I learned mm -hmm. very early on that I had a responsibility to to speak my truth as clearly as I could, and and to understand that there were people out there finding solace with with my struggles. Mm -hmm. And I feel mm -hmm. like I've made tremendous advancements from where I was when I was working on the initially starting the blog. I mean, I am I am a I've flip flopped. I've had the death and rebirth experience multiple times in this lifetime, and but that was a huge one. You know, struggling with these these bigger questions in the framework of UFOs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and here in in, in our civilization, Mike. Uh, Especially in, in, in recent years, there's this uh, obsession with with uh, achieving happiness, right? Like, oh, you know, everybody everybody needs to be happy all the time. You know, why aren't you happy? You know, why aren't you consciously striving to be happy? And I feel uh, that, for at least in in my life, it's more important to find meaning than to find happiness. You know what I mean? Then meaning is more important than to to try to be happy because, because nobody's happy all the time. You know, it, it's even become a, a a reason to be stressed out. You say, "Oh my God, I'm not as happy as that girl who is posting in Instagram that I follow. <laughs> she, she looks so happy. Why am why I think am it's I yeah, it's, it's a form of it's a form oh. of we're torturing ourselves with all this with all this immediate, you know." I understand I put a picture every once in a while up on Facebook and such, but yeah, I, I recognize that it creates this, this schizophrenia in our society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I think that finding a path, finding something meaningful, not only to you, but also to, to others. And yeah, I'm also being great, grateful enough that uh, people read what I have to say in, in, in the daily grail or mysterious universe. And, and, or people listen to me when I when I'm invited to 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 podcast interviews like this one, and people sometimes they they write to me and they thank me because I they find what I have to say uh, important to them, and I feel that is what is giving meaning to my life, and I feel okay. I may not find like the the the, the answers to the universe or the answers to the UFO phenomenon. I'm I'm very okay to the fact that we'll go to my grave without ever finding out the truth about UFOs. Just that to me that's not important. And as cliche as it sounds, 
the journey has been far more rewarding, you know, than the destination. I agree. I agree. And it's it's a tough journey. It's not an easy journey. Oh, yeah, yeah for sure. It's tough. And here, yeah. let, let me just, um, I'll close this out in a moment here. And I'm going to read a quote from Castaneda. And this is a quote that uh, I read many, many times when I did the, my outdoor work. Oh, here's what I was going to say at one point. And I, so you, we were talking about time and mm -hmm. how it feels like time is fleeting now. I worked in the mountains and I took people out into the mountains and we were down in the um, beautiful desert southwest of Utah, just the mm. spectacular canyon country there uh, near the, what's called the Escalante region. And, and there was a, it was a crew of adults. So everyone within the crew was an adult. And we had this incredible vista and the sun was setting. It was getting dark. And all of a sudden, right on the horizon, this is the horizon line was just the trippy, undulating orange red rock that they have down there. All of a sudden, there was this hot orange glow right on the horizon, this dot. Mm. And we all looked at it. It's like, what is that? And slowly, 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 the moon rose. Mm. And the moon, this full moon, rose up. It's about a five-minute process for the moon to, from the, seeing that first little dot as it peeks over the horizon until the moon is fully up. And it was the most riveting experience to be in a group like that. So I've spent a lot of time outdoors. So I've seen a lot of moonrises. There was a few people who had never seen a moonrise. It was such a powerful spiritual experience. Mm. So, hey, you know what? So first, let, I'm going to thank you right now, and then I'm going to read this quote. But thank you so much. This has been great. I... I have taken a sort of hiatus for about three weeks. I just didn't have the energy. I just, everything, just the virus and just being stuck and just all the, I just had a project I was in the middle of and I just didn't have the energy to 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 do the podcast for the last three weeks. And this feels so good to be doing it again. So I, I have to thank you for saying yes. It was, this was, a, I needed this. This is exactly the podcast I needed, exactly the talk I needed to have. No, thank you, Mike. I mean, uh, I cannot. I I have to say that I I need this too in my life. You know, this this kind of conversations uh, in which I, I get to express uh, uh, this side of myself. Yeah, yeah, publicly too, and to say it out loud to the world. I mean, mm -hmm. it's yeah. You have to choose your words carefully. You have to if you're going to say this to the world, you have to be cautious in how you present yourself, and in so it comes out meaningful. That's not that mm -hmm. you're. Not that I'm not that I'm trying to sugarcoat anything or hide anything, but but that it, so it comes out meaningful. Um, you know what I'm going to do, and I thought about this during your talk. I'm going to plug the um, the introduction that you read at the end of this interview. I'll just tack it on at the very end. It's about 13 minutes long, as I recall. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so here, so back to this outdoor work that I did. This is the this I read this on every outdoor trip I have ever done. Any path is only a path. And there is no affront to oneself or to others in dropping it if that is what your heart tells you to do. Look at every path closely and deliberately. Then ask yourself and yourself alone one question. Does this path have a heart? If it does, the path is good. If it does not, it is of no use. And, and that's the from Carlos Castaneda from the first 
book, the first Don Juan book, The Teachings of Don Juan. Yeah. Again, just thank you. This has been great. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Muchas gracias. You're very welcome. This is Mike, and I am chiming in at the end of the editing. I need to say how much I needed to do this exact interview on this exact day. It felt great. And just a few minutes ago, you heard me say that I would plug in the audio forward that was created for the audiobook of my most recent book, Hidden Experience. I asked RPJ to do the forward because he had been a longtime reader of the blog, and he showed up right at the beginning, and that was way back in 2009. Now, Red Pill Junkie, perhaps more than anyone else, knew the ins and outs of my online presence in a way that it was an obvious choice for him to write the forward to that book. Now, I said it earlier, but this interview went a little bit long, so I won't say too much more. And now, again, the delightful voice of Red Pill Junkie. Forward by Red Pill Junkie. It's a question you occasionally stumble upon when you read an article about UFOs published by some mainstream media outlet. Or where have all the alien abductees gone? You know, the same news sites that also love to comment from time to time on the steady decline of UFO sightings. Only with the phenomenon currently known as alien abduction, the cynicism is even more blatant. Because at best, popular culture regards it as a 90s fad, promoted by the X-Files, which the public eventually grew tired of the same way rollerblades and Tamagotchi pets became passé. And at worst, it's still associated with crass proctological jokes, thanks to the irreverent humor of Matt Stone and Trey Parker. But truth be told, answering that question is rather easy. The abductees didn't go anywhere. They simply discovered the power of the internet and started blogging a path that hid them from the judgmental eyes of a public who never really made an effort to make sense of their claims or empathize with their anguish, from skeptics who accused them of lying and being nothing but attention seekers, and from psychiatrists who sought only to interpret their claims merely from a pathological perspective. In an age that has witnessed significant advancements in accepting the rights of the LGBT community, the people who claim to have had close encounters of the fourth kind seem to be locked inside the ultimate cultural closet. As an aside, it's also interesting to notice certain parallels in the search for identity of both groups like the infighting concerning the correct use of terms and pronouns, like, for example, experiencer versus abductee versus contactee. Blogging also freed abductees, or experiencers, whatever floats your saucer, 
from the need of sharing their stories with some intermediary in order to reach a larger audience. I am of the opinion that these biased middlemen, be that a UFO investigator or a TV producer, are often more interested in trying to pigeonhole witnesses' brushes with the other in a way that validates a specific interpretation or make the cases more palatable to orthodox science. Which ultimately implies leaving on the cutting floor a treasure trove of important material often referred to as high strangeness, a whitewashing strategy that was heavily opposed by the late researcher Carla Turner, who thought it is precisely in the absurdity of high strangeness that we could start perceiving a method to the madness. It bears mentioning that focusing on the things that refuse to align with our neat little models of the universe is the most effective way to elicit a true paradigm change, if not necessarily the easiest. In the history of science, we find the example of Johannes Kepler, who was only able to establish the elliptical orbits of the planets after begrudgingly heeding Tycho Brahe's advice to pay special attention in the retrograde motion of Mars. In doing so, he was forced to throw away his entire initial theory. Ouch. But ended up giving birth to modern astronomy as we currently know it. Yay! It is this taboo material of high strangeness, only shared in hushed tones among trusted friends or fellow experiencers behind closed doors, that Mike Clellan was compelled to deep dive into with his blog 10 years ago, not even knowing if he would ever strike bottom or hold his breath long enough. I'm not exactly sure when I started following Hidden Experience, but I know exactly how I became one of its regular followers. Greg Bishop, who is one of my best friends and mentors in the UFO field, wrote about Mike on the now-defunct website UFO Mystic, where he was one of the contributors along with Nick Redfern. Greg was very close to the late Tonis, who found Mike's journal entries almost from the beginning. So it's easy to conclude Mac was the one who enthusiastically advised Greg to check out this new blog. Greg recently told me that he liked Mike's content from the start, because it was, quote-unquote, firmly in the Striever tradition. As an avid reader and commenter in UFO Mystic and other paranormal sites, I followed Greg's recommendation to visit Hidden Experience, and found out he was right. Mike was following Whitley Strieber's mantra of living with the uncertainty of what had happened to him, and refusing to simply accept the narratives imposed by investigators like Bob Hopkins and David Jacobs. I confess, Mike's strict agnosticism toward his own story was at times frustrating, and I'm sure I'm not the only reader who fantasized about giving that big bald head of his a good slap while yelling, snap out of it and just admit it already. I guess the universe did the same in the end using owls instead. 
Yet in retrospect, I'm so ever thankful he soldiered on with his approach. And also that to this day, he still finds the terms abductee and experiencer as incapable to fully encapsulate the totality of what he's been going through as a glass of water is an ill-suited representation of the ocean. But there was also something else which I still can't put my finger on that made Mike's story so compelling to me on a personal level. Perhaps it was the disarming honesty about his own doubts and the willingness to share his life with such openness on a public space to the point that hidden experience almost seemed like an oxymoron. Because this dude was laying it all exposed. Major cojones, señor. Or perhaps because the central theme behind his blog posts wasn't really UFOs, but synchronicities. And at the time, I was starting to pay attention to the magical coincidences manifesting into my own life, which even seemed to have also been boosted by my increasing immersion into cyberspace. Indeed, if the ancestral I Ching should be better understood as a quote-unquote uncertainty engine rather than a divination system, as was proposed by philosopher Will Buckingham on an Aeon essay published in 2013, then perhaps the World Wide Web should also be perceived as a living synchronicity engine rather than an electronic communications network. An acknowledgement that would resonate with Dr. Jacques Vallée's theories that ours is an associative universe governed by consciousness and information, rather than a causative one governed by reductionist physics. Or maybe it was simply because Mike wasn't pretending to have the answers to life, the universe and everything, but merely chronicling his bizarre memories as faithfully as was humanly possible, offering an honest lens into the life of a person who was going through events that seemed masterfully designed to challenge his concept of reality in ways that were as both subtle as they were confounding, without claiming to have any sort of guidance to anyone who might be going through the same ordeal as he was, other than opening yourself completely to the mystery. The anti-guru, if you will. Certainly a breath of fresh air in a field in which looking for a leader is a big temptation. Right, Dr. Steven? Whatever the case, I was hooked on hidden experience, baby. I checked on the blog every day to see if there were any updates and to also comment and read the feedback left by other people. Ah, the good old days before Facebook killed the Blockstar. Turns out, I wasn't the only one who felt mysteriously drawn to Mike's serialized saga. And the small flock of readers, see what I did there, eventually turned into legion after the Google Oracle associated hidden experience as the go-to place to find UFOs 
in conjunction with owls. With Mike's inclusion of wonderful artwork and maps to illustrate his posts, it sometimes felt as if we were taking part of a virtual 4D session of Dungeons and & Dragons, and we're all desperately trying to keep the paladin Sir Clelan safe from the claws of the Demogorgon on his quest for the Grail. And yeah, sometimes we wanted to shove him into that creepy dark cave just to see once and for all what was lurking inside. Seriously though, what I really think was going on is that Mike's intention of using his online journal as a self-therapy tool was not only spot on, but was also working on us, the readers, as well. Hermeneutics is a branch of philosophy dealing with finding the hidden meaning of things. The word itself is derived from Hermes, Greek god of secrets and expensive ties. And in the book The Supernatural, co-written with Whitley Strieber, Professor Jeffrey Kripal argues that the very act of interpreting a hidden symbol, say, an owl or a UFO, transforms the interpreter itself. The cipher becomes the catalyst. You see, if Carl Jung were alive today, I honestly believe that he too would have resorted to blogging instead of creating that mammoth illuminative manuscript called the Red Book to deal with his personal mental and spiritual crisis. Because in the end, that is probably what this is all about. And just like I agree with Mike that synchronicities are the universe's method to make you stop and pay attention, I also suspect that when it comes to the paranormal, nothing occurs by mere chance. By that I mean you should probably ponder on the possibility that it's no accident you happen to have this audiobook on the electronic gadget of your choice right now, dear listener. Hey, was that an owl that just hooted near your window right this moment? Any psychology undergrad is familiar with Maslow's Pyramid of Human Motivation, which shows the primal physiological needs at the base and climbs up until it apexes with self-actualization and the person's need to realize their own potential. What few people know is that not long before he died, Maslow revised his diagram and on top of self-actualization, he included self-transcendence. Writing about it for the website Big Think, Robbie Berman explains that we can understand that final developmental step as the need to, quote, see ourselves as part of a bigger universe to develop the common priorities that can allow humankind to survive as a species, end quote. We could also use a less pompous term and simply understand it as having a quote-unquote sense of a mission, just like Mike and others like him claim, in which case even someone who may be on the fence about his story could still see the positive benefits of his ongoing introspective examination. Or maybe the urgency Mike felt when he started to type on his computer screen in the spur of the moment in March of 2009, 
had some deeper ulterior motive that we are yet to fathom. In which case, I'm only 73% joking when I say that I hope that by recording this foreword, Mike can put in a good word for me when the mothership lands. Red Pill Junkie, recorded in Mexico City, January 2020. Hey, this is Mike, and I am offering up a final goodbye for this episode, a show I have truly enjoyed. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.